a new class of software is capable of monitoring, categorizing, and timestamping every online move we make. Scholar and journalist Michael Quet is here to explain it. You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. On Real Fiction, I speak with authors, journalists, scholars, and change makers about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. Real Fiction airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in a moment with Michael Quet. A new class of surveillance software can now summarize data about our online movements in a matter of minutes compared to what used to require weeks or months of tracking by law enforcement and government tracking. A company based in Wyoming, Shadow Dragon, is the focus of an incredible piece of journalism published last week in The Intercept. The question is, what are the legal and practical implications of this little-known area of technology? My guest today is Michael Quet, who authored the article, Shadow Dragon, Inside the Social Media Surveillance Software That Can Track Your Every Move. He is a visiting fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale University Law School. He is the author of Digital Colonialism, U.S. Empire, and the New Imperialism in the Global South. He hosts Tech Empire Podcast, and his work has been published in Wired, BBC, World News Radio, Al Jazeera, many publications. Joining me today from New Haven, Connecticut is Michael Quet. Michael, welcome to Real Fiction. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me on. Michael, I was stunned by your Shadow Dragon investigation and frankly, in a little denial after reading it, um, in an investigative piece published on September 21st in The Intercept, you write about a surveillance software contract with the company Shadow Dragon. It was signed by the Michigan State Police, and it was only through a Freedom of Information Act request that a fully unredacted copy of the contract was made available on a website. And I might add it temporarily, you downloaded this document before it disappeared. What did you learn about the company Shadow Dragon and the intent uh, and use by the Michigan State Police? I actually came across it at a time that I was looking into uh, Microsoft's Public Safety and Justice Division Uh, Most people don't know, but Microsoft has heavy involvement with law enforcement agencies. And they have their own products, like a surveillance system platform that powers uh, kind of centralized surveillance. You can call it a dragnet or Mm -hmm. um, just bringing in a bunch of different surveillance sensors like video cameras, but also pulling data. And they run that in New York City. And that's actually fairly well known. And then they export it out to other places. But they also have a partnership ecosystem that they run on the Azure cloud, Microsoft Azure cloud, Mm. where they have all these vendors who supply surveillance technology and then to law enforcement, and then they run it on the cloud. So I was looking into the partnership ecosystem and I came across this contract. I was actually looking at a company called Caseware, which is a platform 
kind of like that Microsoft platform I was just mentioning. And I came across this contract online, so I downloaded it. And then the next day it was gone. And then somebody contacted me from Michigan and they had that FOIA request that you told me. And it turned out that the Michigan State Police had redacted Hmm. the information that I saw on the contract. So I started looking into this company called Shadow Dragon. And what I learned is they're a social media surveillance firm that pulls in what they call in the industry open source intelligence. Mm -hmm. And they basically build into their software a system that can suck in anything that anybody posts publicly on the internet from various sources that they have access to um, that they can query because they're just there online. So for example, if you make a Twitter post and it's a public post, it's not locked as up as private, then anybody can access that. But then if you also make a post at Amazon, let's say you you put a wish list in and it's a public Mm. wish list, then they can see that too. And if you make a post at Huffington Post in the comments section, and let's say you have an alias and a, a username that you're using across, they can bring that in. And so what winds up happening is instead of police going to a website to look into particular individuals on a case-by-case basis, they've created a software platform that can automate this and they can search for usernames, for your real name, for phone numbers, and they can pull all this information into their software and, and search across the web over 120 different websites, social media platforms, and so on. And they can bring it into one place. And then once they bring it into that one place, they can start building a timeline of your events. So when did you make that Amazon wishlist post? When did you make that Twitter post? They can try to figure out where you are. Mm. They can start to build, if you look at the promotional videos, they can start to, to build profiles of you including your friend networks. And then they can start looking at the ties that you have with them and start to try to figure out who you know, what your relationship is with those people. They can start looking into those other people. And so what winds up happening is people believe that they're going online and they're just making a Twitter post here or just posting something else at Instagram there or or so on. But actually what's, hap- what's happening with software like this is they're able to watch you across all this, these websites and start to map out who you are, what you do over time, who you know, and pull it all into one spot. You know, it strikes me as I listen to this that the question for a group like the Michigan State Police is that they are considering that line between public safety and maybe trying to avoid profiling, but uh, it feels like it could be a tough balance. So you learned about this contract with this social media surveillance company, Shadow Dragon in Michigan. Are other police departments using this software? And do we know anything about uh, their internal processes and controls and how they're utilizing this data? So the answer to that is yes. On public record, what we know is that Uh, Police in Massachusetts have acquired it and some are using it. That was reported by NBC. But the more important part of that question is 
what do they do? And before I get to that, actually, I should note that it's also the case that there may be many other police departments that are using this um, because we don't have any real public transparency behind where these products are deployed, including not only in the United States, but in other countries, because Shadow Dragon has a presence in other continents where there may be repressive regimes using this kind of software. So as far as what's done with it uh, by police, there's no transparency and there's no oversight. So I reached out to the Michigan State Police and asked them questions about how they use it. Um, is there, it, can we have any evidence provided that it's, it's effective? What are the procedures? What are the rules? And they chose to not to answer those questions. It is also the case that governments have purchased this software. Perhaps corporations can purchase this software. What do you know about the licensing agreements established by Shadow Dragon? Who is eligible to obtain these licenses? Well, we know for certain that corporations also do use their software because in their promotional material online, they advertised the use of their software by corporations. As far as the terms of it, that's all off the record because these are all private contracts between businesses. As far as what the corporations do with it, it's an interesting question. So in one of their promotional videos, they show a corporation that is worried about protests that are going to occur and they're trying to predict if a protest will break out because they're worried about their brand, they're worried about what they perceive to be could be a riot. And we also have seen on their website them mention that they could do use this information for employee background checks. So we can also imagine a corporation using it for uh, something like surveilling their workers to see what they're up to, to see what they're about. As far as rules and procedures, I did speak over email with the CEO of Shadow Dragon and asked about rules and procedures, but he declined to answer. You know, I think about the technology, and this is where uh, it gets perhaps very confusing to someone who just comes across this information about surveillance software. Shadow Dragon says that they do not employ predictive applications in their software, but I believe that is the case that they do partner with other platforms that go beyond the so-called data scraping from online, just online sources. So what can you tell us about the compatible software with predictive capabilities and how that might work to a greater degree to surveil people when multiple platforms or multiple technologies are working together? Right. So that's a great question. Um, So first of all, while they say that they are against predictive policing, as I just noted, there's a video linked in the article where they talk about using one of their products, OI Monitor, to predict unrest and violence before it starts. But going beyond that, and and that's for a corporate client there. Um, Going beyond that, so I had mentioned earlier that Shadow Dragon is a social media and website surveillance software. They also look for information on what's called the dark web. 
where it's, you know, kind of shadowy, you know, networks that are in websites on the Tor network, which is a kind of sub network of the internet. So they, they spider across those places, but then the, the Shadow Dragon software actually runs within other platforms. And one of those platforms, the one the Michigan State Police have, is called Caseware. Now, one of the questions the Michigan State Police did answer is that they are not using Caseware for predictive policing. And for your audience, predictive policing is trying to predict outbreaks of, of crime before they occur. And there's a lot of studies that show that it winds up reinforcing class and, and racial bias uh, because police wind up patrolling, over patrolling those areas. And then there's kind of a feedback loop. I asked Shadow Dragon about where they deploy their software. So the problem is, and if they have any rules in place or procedures in place, you know, to prevent clients from using their software for, say, things like predictive policing, and they're not forthcoming with any information about this. Hmm. So that means that, let's say it is another police department that is doing predictive policing. As far as we know, Shadow Dragon could be used to add information into predictive policing platforms. And as you write in the article, Caseware is an existing platform that's used, it's, I, I suspect it's widely used. You mentioned that it's used by the United States government. Um, and again, this feels like a delicate balance. As we know that the United States and other governments are guilty of mission creep, certainly as matters of national security come to the forefront. What kind of oversight groups might be monitoring this development? I know you're looking at it, probably the Information Society Project is looking at it. Uh, broadly, what are you seeing? Well, I'm, I'm seeing some pushback from the legal community. So there's the Brennan Center, which has commission reports on social media surveillance. The ACLU, uh, who in response to the report at The Intercept, had put out a tweet which said this needs to end. Mm. Um, but the issue is at the moment, we're kind of still in the awareness raising stage. So I think that this needs to at some point go to the courts and go to the lawmakers who have to start looking at this and say, is this something that is compatible with a free society? And what should be the regulations on this? Because right now it's kind of a, a wild west. Yeah, yeah. Let's hover there for a minute because you have a quote in the article that really stayed with me and it came from Phil Mayer of the ACLU. And he said, quote, it's deeply concerning that this kind of technology is being purchased and used by law enforcement without public discussion. So as you say, we're in an area of, an, an era of awareness. I think most people don't even know that this new technology that is so robust exists. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're, you're a fellow at Yale Law School, and you've also done a great deal of investigative journalism. So I'd like to know, as you are studying this from a very unique vantage point, how do you square the need for safe society with this potential for overreach? Well, I, I think what's happened is that the law wasn't built for these kinds of technologies. 
So I want to make a comparison to surveillance cameras, which is something else I've also done a lot of work on. When surveillance cameras were deemed in public, were deemed legal, it was in an era where you might be a gas station or a store and you just put one camera on a store. And if an incident occurs, the police would have to come and review the footage. If it went onto a videotape cassette, you'd have to play and rewind and all that kind of thing. Now, you can imagine somebody, say, robbing a store, and then you'd have to be able to track them down. You'd have to go from store to store wherever a camera existed. And city networks only had, you know, I think Chicago had something like 20-something when I interviewed their police um, for a different article, and today they have 35,000. What happened over time is cameras went from fuzzy kind of old school things to these digital sharp pictures that can be pulled into software and they can form a single network. And now you have a situation where people can sit in a command and control center and they can watch and they can go from camera to camera and they even use artificial intelligence to start sifting through that information for authorities. Hmm. So they can look for a person who's wearing a red shirt. They can codify if, if they're walking or running. They can look for cars and they can do potentially facial recognition. So now you have a different kind of animal, right? You have something that started off as this one surveillance camera somewhere. And now you have this huge system that cover that can track people around and cover wide areas. And that's a different kind of thing. So the law wasn't really built to deal with what we kind of, you know, sleepwalked into over the last 20 years. Now, social media surveillance here is kind of similar. People go like, yeah, of course, if you have a Twitter uh, account and you're making your posts public, it's fair game for a police officer to go online and look at your Twitter account. But what really has happened is they've created software that can go from website to website and take all of the publicly available information about people and bring it all into one spot and then use software to automate to try to start figuring you out. And in addition to that, it can map out your social networks and then those people get caught up in that. They can be considered suspect because of association with you Mm -hmm. as a suspect and they get subjected to this kind of dragnet surveillance as well. So the law hasn't really caught up with the tools that have been developed and then put out there. And in order for us to begin to deal with this, we have to start looking at this from you know a 21st century standpoint. I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Michael Quet. He authored an incredible article in The Intercept titled Shadow Dragon, inside the social media surveillance software that can watch your every move. It's quite unsettling to think about this. Um, And I just want to make sure I understand what open source intelligence means. You list many uh, social media websites within the article. Um, Some of them made sense. They were very obvious. Others surprised me. But can you just tell me in your words as an expert, what is open source intelligence 
And I think that anybody who's using some of the obvious ones like Facebook Messenger, they might think, okay, is this, uh, this software capable of penetrating encrypted messaging or is it, is it really just something posted on a public profile? As far as we know, it's, and we have good reason to believe, it's just what is posted in a public profile. I did ask the CEO of Shadow Dragon about this because he did make a comment in one of his blogs about the need to, um, here's the quote. In speaking of Telegram, which is a chat app that's not as popular in the US, but is popular throughout the world. He said, the company claims to have some interesting OSINT, open source intelligence capabilities in our social net platform. That's one of their products for more hardened and encrypted slash secure communication protocols. Please ping us on that. When I asked him about that, he said that they don't penetrate encrypted communications. So if you're on WhatsApp and you're end to end encrypted, you're, you should still be confident that that information is private. But what they can do is figure out if you're on WhatsApp and Telegram has some forums that people post in, some uh, groups and channels, and they're also looking into those. So yeah, if you're using end-to-end encryption, you don't have to worry about Shadow Dragon. But it still is a little uncomfortable that he made that comment there about encrypted slash secure communications uh, because he never explained what that was really about. The founder of Shadow Dragon is a man named Daniel Clemens, has been involved with developing this class of surveillance software for a number of years. As you've studied him, do you um, you get the sense that he's, uh, I mean, one person's visionary is another person's villain. Sometimes there's overlap. This is, it strikes me as a very ambitious company and the software is expensive to license. Uh, You do detail that a bit. Can you mention or talk about how much it costs to run software in a group like the Michigan or Massachusetts State Police or the the U.S. government? How well-funded is Shadow Dragon as a result? Well, Shadow Dragon doesn't raise VC money, so they're Hmm. depending on these contracts. SocialNet and OI Monitor are two of the products that the Michigan State Police Uh, acquired, and they're $39,000 each per year. And that's not terribly expensive, but I think it's worth noting that it also, uh, since they get to decide who their clients are, it would be nice to be able to have people in the public and researchers get a hold of the software and get, get a sense of, you know, how it works exactly. I couldn't do something like that, right? when trying to research the article, but they also have contracts with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And I think that's another thing people should be worried about, that the Shadow Dragon software is being used to look into communities of people who are ostensibly is being used for this to look in for undocumented persons and whatever ICE wants to look for. Um, so there were two companies that are listed in the article that were using Shadow Dragon or Shadow Dragon, the contract went out to, and one was for 289500 and the other one was for $602,000. Oh. So those contracts could, get, could become very expensive as well. As I think about all of this, Michael, and again, I 
no, I knew nothing really about this new class of software until I read your your investigative work. And I want to ask you something I've, ex- I've asked other journalists and academics on this program, because um, these issues that you are looking into are, well, let's just say they're a little shadowy, a little murky. How do you, how do you stay protected? How do you stay committed to this kind of work when people behind the products like Shadow Dragon know that you're working on it and um, could perhaps just monitor what you're doing? I, I know that other journalists at The Intercept who are doing this deep kind of investigative work have been threatened. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was joking around with some friends and saying, you're probably going to be swept up in this now. <laughs> um, but I mean... I mean, to be honest with you, when I look at a product like Shadow Dragon, you know, I I live in a very privileged society and, you know, from I'm with the Yale Law School. So it's not like I'm a journalist in internally repressive government. I don't really worry too much. I mean, I do have a Twitter. I do have my Facebook posts are private. My my Twitter posts are, are usually public, but it's not in their interest to start trying to mess with me, it would just backfire on them if they ever got caught doing anything. You are immersed in some areas of technology that, as you said, were just at the very beginning of awareness, and there's very little public discussion about this. So I'm going to be watching for what you write, and hopefully we'll get you back on the program again. Uh, Michael Quet, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today and walking us through this um, Uh, very murky, shadowy uh, area of technology called social media surveillance software. And for listeners, I'll post links to his writing. Uh, Michael Quet authored an incredible piece uh, in September in The Intercept. And Michael, thank you for doing this work and for spending some time with us today to explain it. Thanks for having me on, Lori. I love the show. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and wherever you get your podcasts. All episodes are archived on the program website, realfictionradio.com. I've posted links to the article we discussed today and some additional work produced by Michael Quet. Thank you for listening.